So uh, welcome everyone, um, everybody in the room and those who are watching remotely. Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sam Bacom back here. He graduated from um, Simon Fraser, British Columbia, Canada. He got his MD and PhD from Dartmouth, so he spent with us like eight years. He went into Memorial Sloan Kettering for residency in radiation oncology. And right now, he's the Holden Research Fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Of course, he has a great experience in uh, chromosomal missegregation, has a great bibliography, and published almost more than 35 articles on that. And um, he has grants, of course, related to the same topic. And um, he's a reviewer in multiple prestigious journals. And um, today he will be introducing us to the concept of chromosomal missegregation. Maybe we should mention that most recently he had an um, important paper published in Nature about chromosomal missegregation and metastases and mechanisms. And I'm sure that you're going to touch base about that too today. Um, with that, um, I'll leave the disclosures to him. He doesn't share his disclosures with me, but uh, at least we uh, uh, would say that the conflict of interest Dr. Beckham did not or does not have any financial interests pertinent to this presentation, and he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or a device, and he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And uh, without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Bacon to the podium. Thank you for this very kind introduction. And I have to admit, it's really nice to be back. Uh, and thank you all for being here. And what I'm hoping to talk to you about today is um, kind of uh, a recent story that stems from my work on chromosomal instability um, and hope to leave you with the impression of how important chromosomal instability is to in shaping the behavior of tumor cells and the immune microenvironment. Um, so yes, unfortunately, I do not have any disclosures. Uh, so before uh, I go on, I just wanted to give you a very quick historical perspective on the concept of chromosomal instability. Um, it's actually, um, it has been observed for over 100 years ago uh, by a German botanist by the name of Theodore Bovary, um, and he noticed that sometimes cells undergo aberrant mitosis or cell division. And instead of dividing into a bipolar spindle, sometimes these cells divide into a multipolar spindle. And at the time, even though it was 100 years back, he uh, surmised that maybe chromosomal instability or this abnormality in cell division could be at the genesis uh, of cancer. And I must admit, over 100 years later, there's many fundamental questions about chromosomal instability that, we still, uh, that still remain unanswered. Uh, before I go on, I just wanted to make sure that the two of us, or all of us, are um, on the same page with respect to uh, two definitions. Uh, basically, it's the difference between aneuploidy uh, and chromosomal instability. So aneuploidy itself is a state of abnormal or non-diploid uh, chromosome number. Um, and it can exist here, this cell is aneuploid, this cell is diploid, et cetera. Chromosomal instability is the rate with which chromosomes missegregate every time cells divide. And uh, if you look at cancer in a pain cancer analysis, you'll find that in the majority of aneuploid cancers are chromosomally unstable, and the majority of chromosomally unstable cancers are aneuploid. However, it is possible to have an aneuploid tumor that has a specific 
uh, trisomy or et cetera, for instance, a lot of blood cancers have that, and that the missegregation rate is very low, so they're not really chromosomally unstable. Or if, in theory, there is a very strong uh, fitness for a given selection, for a given karyotype, if cells deviate from that karyotype, they die, and therefore the tumor has an apparent stable karyotype, and therefore it's considered not really chromosomally unstable. Uh, however, understanding the differences between these two strict definitions, aneuploidy being a state, chromosomal instability being the rate at which chromosomes segregate, uh, is going to be important later on in the talk. So I'm showing you here um, uh, chromosome paint from two glioblastoma cells from the same tumor. And what I'd like you to just focus on is the remarkable degree, not only of abnormality, but heterogeneity uh, that could exist among cells. And if you only focus here on chromosome 7, you can see this cell here, or chromosome 8. For instance, the cell here has four copies of chromosome 8. The bottom cell here has seven copies of chromosome 8. And even these four copies of chromosome 8 are not identical because they have structural abnormalities. So seeing this level of abnormalities and heterogeneity in cancer, it is not difficult to make the leap uh, and think, you know, and make the, actually ask the question, does this karyotypic heterogeneity engender transcriptional and potentially phenotypic uh, heterogeneity as well. So the role of chromosomal instability in tumor evolution in general, uh, it's known to correlate to tumor evolution, but whether it plays a driver role has actually been significantly understudied. And this is the you know, famous tumor evolution kind of cartoon where we, there is a lot of money and effort and research uh, spent looking at single nucleotide variants and how they might drive uh, tumor genesis, insertions, deletions, but much less so. Um, uh, there hasn't been much of an effort looking at chromosomal instability. Where does it take place? Where does it, where, where does it play the most important role? Is it primarily important for processes such as metastasis um, um, or therapeutic resistance? Uh, or is it something that is important in the early steps of tumor genesis? So a lot of these questions uh, still remain unanswered. And I'm putting the slide here because it summarizes the work that I've done, but it also gives a framework of how I think about the problem. And this stems from uh, an important observation that in the clinic, many times we see that chromosomal instability correlates with uh, poor prognosis. However, in some instances, we see that chromosomal instability paradoxically predicts good response to um, chemoradiation therapy, for instance. And so this paradoxical relationship uh, has kind of befuddled the field a little bit. And I think it's in part because the, the act of or the, the concept of chromosomal instability can actually have multiple effects on the cells. Sometimes these effects are in parallel. Sometimes these effects go in opposite directions. And so... Uh, and I think the, the way I like to think about the problem, and maybe this is not all-inclusive, is that chromosomal instability can lead to um, tumor evolution through generation of karyotypic and genomic heterogeneity that forms, as the, that forms the substrate for Darwinian evolution. On the other hand, chromosomal instability can also directly influence the cell transcriptionally, either through cell stress or through cytosolic DNA response, as I'm going to tell you. And this can also, in turn, independently influence this processes such as metastasis and drug resistance. Uh, in some cases, these two processes are in parallel. In some cases, they're opposing each other. That's why I think we should, in order to understand the exact mechanism or consequences of chromosomal instability on tumor evolution, we should try as much as possible and deconstruct the individual effects uh, of, of this process uh, on cancer cells and the immune microenvironment. So uh, what I'm going to talk to you today, instead of 
mentioning you multiple stories, I'm going to focus on one story that I found was relatively interesting, linking chromosomal instability to transcriptional changes in the tumor cells in response to the presence of cytosolic DNA that then actually facilitates uh, the progression of distant metastasis. <clears throat> so before we delve into the cell biology and tumor biology, we wanted to know first if there is a correlation between chromosomal instability and metastasis in human samples. To do this, we used three different uh, human data sets and used orthogonal methods to assess chromosomal instability. The first one was a reanalysis of a matched primary tumor and brain metastases pairs, 84 of them, um, or 79 of them, from a paper published by Brastianos et al. recently in Cancer Discovery. And it was whole exome sequencing of primary tumors and the brain metastases from the same patients. Uh, with the help of Charlie Swanton at the UK, we uh, applied the Weighted Genomic Integrity Index, which basically measures the degree of heterogeneity and copy number for every nucleotide um, normalized to the length of the chromosome. And for a matched analysis, we found a significant difference where metastases were more likely to have a higher uh, weighted genomic integrity index. This is the raw data. In lung, there is a trend, but in other histologies like breast, renal cell carcinoma, and all the other lumped histologies, there is a clear increase in genomic heterogeneity in the metastases compared to the primary tumor. Taking another approach, um, I went and extracted the, the 900 or so breast cancer cases archived in the Middleman database. And for each case and each clone, I went back to the original literature to see if this was derived from a primary tumor or from a metastatic sample. And what we found was th this is uh, an important graph here where th this is a log two scale. Primary tumors were primarily clustered around the diploid karyotype. So five here is corresponding to 46 chromosome. And of course, there is a spread. It's not 100% diploid, but it was around the diploid karyotype, whereas there was an increase uh, in a near triploid karyotype in metastatic samples. And if you look at the individual clones derived from these samples, you'll see that metastases had twice as many chromosomal aberrations compared to primary tumors. So that was interesting to see. We then used a third uh, data set, and it's from a small cohort of um, locally advanced uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. And in that cohort, instead of looking at the metastases, we actually looked at the primary tumors, and we assessed chromosome segregation errors in the primary tumors themselves. And you could actually, using HNE at 40 or 60x uh, you know, objective, you can actually assess anaphase cells. And this is a case where you can see a normal anaphase. The cells, the cells dividing, you can see the constriction here, and there's nothing in between the two anaphase plates, whereas these, these two cells here are examples of chromosome missegregation events. And this is in the primary tumor. The nice thing about this data set is that it had clinical information about node, lymph node metastasis at the time of diagnosis, so there was no confounder when it comes to treatment effect. And what we found is uh, patients with node-positive disease had primary tumors that exhibited more frequently chromosome missegregation events compared to patients with node-negative disease, suggesting that chromosomal instability in the primary tumor is associated with, uh, at least in that system, lymph node metastasis. Uh, since these were locally advanced, there was no patients with distant metastasis at the time of diagnosis. So using these three orthogonal approaches from three data sets, we were confident that there is a reasonable correlation between chromosomal instability and metastasis in human patients. So that kind of gave us the encouragement to proceed and look at this work in, um, in cell biology, you know, using cell biology and tumor 
models. So a very brief introduction on chromosomal instability. There are many, many defects in cancer that can promote uh, or induce chromosomal instability. Uh, one of the interesting things about this phenotype is many of these defects, maybe not 100%, but a lot of these defects, lead to the formation of this very conspicuous phenotype in anaphase, which many of you probably have seen before, and what we call lagging chromosomes. These chromosomes lag in the middle because they're attached to microtubules emanating from opposite spindle poles leading to the stug of war. Um, these lagging chromosomes can lead directly to chromosome missegregation, but they can also lead to the formation of these small structures called micronuclei. Uh, and the biology of micronuclei has recently been a subject of a lot of interest and I think will become relevant later in the talk. But just remember that there are two potential products for, uh, chromosome, uh, or for lagging chromosomes. So uh, lagging chromosomes are not just a feature of cell, uh, cell lines. This is a U2S osteosarcoma cell line. You can see stained for centromeres, microtubules, and chromosomes. And you can see here lagging chromosomes attached to microtubules. Uh, but it's also a, you know, a feature of human tumors. This is an HNE from a rectal adenocarcinoma. And uh, you can see here an example of a lagging chromosome between the two uh, chromosome masses. So uh, we, I'm, I'm not going to go into the detail for this because we've published on it extensively. However, by overexpressing uh, kinesin-13 proteins, and these are non-motile microtubule depolymerizing kinesins that localize to either the centromere or the kinetic core and destabilize microtubules, leading to suppression of or, or error correction of the erroneously attached microtubules, simply stated, we were actually able to generate as closely as we could isogenic lines that have different rates of ongoing chromosome segregation uh, errors or segregation errors. And you can see here, these are the three lines. Uh, MDMB231 is a human triple negative breast cancer cell line. H23 is a lung adenocarcinoma cell line. And 41 is a mouse spontaneous uh, mammary, murine spontaneous triple negative uh, breast cancer line as well. And what you can see here, the, the control condition is that cell line unperturbed. And so many, all of these three cell lines are actually relatively chromosomally unstable to start with. What we were able to do is overexpress kinesin-13 proteins, suppress chromosome segregation, or express the dominant negative of, of one of these kinesin-13 proteins and actually increase chromosome segregation. So for each of the cell lines, we now had isogenic uh, you know, um, lines that have different rates of chromosome segregation. What is very important uh, to note is that all of these cell lines are highly aneuploid and abnormal. Uh, but we've made them aneuploid stable versus aneuploid unstable. And I think that's the key description here, or the distinction here that we should uh, recall. So to, you know, from a very kind of mechanistic agnostic perspective, we asked, does chromosomal instability play a role in uh, metastatic colonization? And to do this, we injected these cells using a, and, and they had bioluminescence reporter or just luciferase in the left ventricle of athymic mice. We've also done that with immunocompetent mice with the 41 model. And what we saw is a very striking correlation between total animal bioluminescence and the frequency of chromosome segregation in these cells. You can see here, these are ordered in, 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 in increasing chromosome segregation. You can see this is a log scale. The, column, the, the, the total body uh, bioluminescence was significantly correlated to the frequency of missegregation. MAT2 overexpression is known to rescue or increase chromosomal instability, and we were able to rescue the metastasis phenotype and increase, by increasing chromosomal instability in the what we call CIN low uh, cell line. So that was nice to see that it's not an off-target effect of kinesin-13 overexpression. The survival, the, these 
these cells colonized the bone, the lung, the brain. There was no specific organ tropism that we were able to see. Uh, but we also started with parental cells from the ATCC, so they were not selected to go to any specific organs. The survival of these mice was strikingly different between the high instability, which we call CIN or SIN high, versus SIN low. So that was also interesting to see. These athymic mice don't live a very long life, but many of these have lived and, you know, basically died of old age rather than of disease uh, progression. Uh, so we then did an interesting experiment that's more of an evolutionary experiment <clears throat> where we've taken cell lines at, with different rates of chromosomal instability, which we have in blue here called injected cells, uh, injected them either intracardiac, so in the left ventricle directly to enable systemic dissemination, and derived cells from the metastatic lesions that form. Alternatively, we injected these cells orthotopically derived cells from the primary tumors and from the spontaneous metastases that formed in that same animal. The color codes of all these bars here corresponds to the color codes of these uh, cells in the diagram, in the schematic diagram. We first did this experiment with two patients derived xenografts uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering and found in, in an ER positive patient and a triple negative uh, xenograft, we found that in each case cells derived from the primary tumors had lower rates of chromosome segregation errors compared to cells derived from metastatic lesions. So there was actually bidirectional selection. And this bidirectional selection you could see really nicely here in, in the high instability cell line. So this is the injected cell line right there, <clears throat> injected in the fat pad, made a primary tumor. The rate of missegregation from the cells coming out of the primary tumor actually dropped. And then from the spontaneous metastases that formed in the same animal, it went back up. And again, this is the cell, the same injected cell line. This is the rate of missegregation, metastases derived after hematogenous dissemination, primary tumors. So the bottom line here is it what seems to be a recurrent case for most, <clears throat> most of these cells is that primary tumors tend to select for cells that have lower rates of chromosome missegregation, whereas metastases tend to select for cells that have higher rates of chromosome missegregation. And to me, it was actually striking to see this effect happening within two months span of the lifetime of the animal. So the segregation went down, and in metastases, it went back up. <clears throat> so that was really unexpected and interesting to see. To then uh, understand a little bit more, we decided to do uh, bulk RNA-seq of these cells in culture because they're isogenic. We figured it would be a good system to see what pathways are going up and down. And we actually found uh, 2,000 differentially expressed genes uh, between the high instability and low instability cells. Uh, it was nice to see that a lot of the, you know, the gene set enrichment analysis, uh, many of the pathways that were highly correlated with the gene expression signature were metastasis-related gene sets, so that was nice to see, and it fits with the data. I would like to draw your attention that this gene expression signature was derived from in vitro work simply altering instability. The metastasis gene sets were derived from in vivo work. So what that really indicates is chromosomal instability generates a transcriptional response that is similar to metastasis um, um, in, you know, in, in basically the processes that you see from in vivo metastases. We found actually um, that many in, in vivo, when you compared metastases to primary tumors, uh, we found that there are very similar pathways upregulated in the metastases compared to the CIN high cells in vitro. But what we also found is a cluster of genes that were upregulated on chromosome 1. The outer layer here is the log twofold gene expression change. The middle layer is the probability or the, log, the, the, the negative log P, uh, the negative log of the probability that this chromosome or chromosomal segment is amplified or deleted. 
And this suggests that in this model, there is relative amplification of chromosome 1 in the metastases compared to the primary tumors. And we actually did karyotyping on 40 samples or so and found that actually, in fact, the primary cell line was on average diploid. It had some clones that had two copies of chromosome 1. But most, if actually all of the primary tumors independently lost one copy of chromosome 1, which was actually quite surprising. So all of the primary tumors had two copies of chromosome 1. The cell, the parental line, and the metastases retained three copies of chromosome 1. And uh, the, the genes that were upregulated on chromosome 1 were EMT genes as well as innate immune system genes. And that we'll get back to this uh, in a minute. So uh, I took the top 23 differentially expressed genes from this, uh, you know, basically comparing CIN high and CIN low in culture and wanted to see if they have any prognostic um, relevance in breast cancer patients. So this is from a 600-patient meta-analysis. And indeed, the CIN high, patients that have a higher uh, CIN signature in their primary tumors were more likely to metastasize compared to patients that had the lower level of that signature. So the red is CIN high, the green is CIN low, and you can see in the meta-analysis as well as the validation cohort, the CIN signature was quite predictive of distant metastasis-free survival. This uh, held up uh, when you actually did uh, divided the population or the patient population based on um, um, you know, tumor subtypes. So this was true irrespective of nodal status, grades, uh, or receptor status. And this was from the um, uh, meta-analysis, and this is the validation cohort. So it's actually a pretty strong signature. To me, it was surprising that we were able to derive such a strong signature from in vitro alteration of the cells in culture and 2D culture, but I thought it was interesting. So to really look further into the biology, and since chromosomal instability generates a lot of heterogeneity, we wanted to look a little bit more at the single cell level. So to do this, we actually sequenced about 6,500 cells from three different cell lines. Uh, what you're looking at here, the red, this is the, sorry, I'm trying to get the mouse. The red here is the high instability. The blue shades here are the low instability cell lines. And these are all the EMT genes that we could find. And what was really interesting is if you ask anybody, is MDMB231 cell line mesenchymal or epithelial, the response will naturally be just it was mesenchymal. In reality, it's actually a mix. Uh, and what we could see here is there was a shift between the high mesenchymal phenotype that was enriched in the CIN high cells to a more epithelial-like phenotype that was enriched in the CIN low cells. Of course, the correlation is not 100%. This is a mixed population in each. And you can see some CIN low also having mesenchymal phenotype, but they are the minority. When you actually look at these cells using high-resolution immunofluorescence and stain for EMT markers, you see the, the CIN low cells, the low instability cell lines, grow in this nice monolayer, almost looking like RPE in a way. And they touch each other, they're happy, they close the gap, whereas the high instability lines grow in like this spindly appearance. They look like stingrays. They basically walk on top of each other. No matter how confluent they are, they're still going to just kind of walk on top of each other. They have more diffuse vimentin staining, cytosolic and nuclear beta-catenin, et cetera. These cells in vitro are also more invasive through a collagen membrane. So you can see here, this is CIN low, CIN medium, CIN high, and you can see there's a nice trend. Uh, but what this tells us is, you know, what all of this tells us is that there is a cell autonomous phenotype that we observe in response to inducing or suppressing chromosomal instability in vitro. And that cell autonomous phenotype looks um, very much like an EMT-like program. And 
we, a lot of us are becoming, you know, gaining appreciation that EMT is not a black and white switch. It's actually a spectrum, and the single cell data very nicely shows that spectrum. So uh, to look further into this, uh, we decided to do, uh, use graph-based uh, clustering that basically uses population detection in an unbiased manner using all genes uh, in the single cell data. So these are 6,000 cells. And the graph structure identified about 12 subpopulations. What I want to draw your attention here in all these busy slides is this really interesting dichotomy between subpopulations that were enriched into proliferation-related and metabolism-related pathways. So you can see here E2F, uh, MYC, mTOR, PI3 kinase oxidative phosphorylation. A lot of these subpopulations were very proliferative. Uh, the other group of cells or subpopulations were enriched into EMT, chromosomal instability signature, and a whole host of inflammatory pathways. Again, this is surprising because this result was found in vitro, not in vivo. And all we did was alter chromosomal instability. So the chromosomally unstable cells fell in that second category, which is EMT and inflammation. What was really interesting is there was a recent paper published by a Rulshinian's group from Michigan. Uh, it was published this year in Nature, and they basically did genomic and transcriptomic analysis of 500 metastatic patients. Uh, and they found that when they did, you know, unsupervised clustering of the metastases, what they found is population fell into, the metastases fell into one of two categories, proliferation and high metabolism, inflammation and EMT. And what I want to, again, stress to you is that this is data derived from in, vi in vivo data. So, you know, some of these inflammatory uh, signatures could be coming from immune cells. But this, we were able to recapitulate the switch almost in in vitro data simply by altering chromosomal instability. And that leads us to hypothesize, and it's a testable hypothesis, whether chromosomal instability is a driver of this subset of human metastases whereas maybe other mechanisms drive this other subset that is, looks like potentially oncogenic <coughs> signaling uh, driven. So uh, I you know, spent a little bit of time thinking, why would cells cultured in vitro generate such a strong inflammatory signal? They are not co-cultured with immune cells. They were not injected into a mouse. You know, that was very strange. And I was on the verge of throwing the data, thinking it's a lot of false positive. Uh, until the thought came, you know, basically from the idea, could chromosomal instability be introducing genomic DNA into the cytoplasm, basically tricking the cells as if they are in a pseudo-virally infected state? So when a cell has double-stranded DNA into the cytoplasm, that activates a whole host of inflammatory pathways under the, basically the, that, that are mechanisms that are innate to the cell to fight viral infections. So uh, I'm not showing you some negative data here, but... You know, there has been suggestions in the literature that DNA damage can lead genomic DNA to leak into the cytoplasm directly from the primary nucleus. We did use an NLS-GFP reporter to measure a primary nuclear rupture and found no differences uh, between high instability and low instability cells. So we focused our attention on micronuclei. And um, if you recall, I mentioned to you that chromosome segregation errors can lead to the formation of micronuclei. And recently, there's been a lot of interest in these micronuclei, in part because they're basically incubators for DNA damage, re-replication, chromosome pulverization, and eventually, I think work done by David Talman showed that these random re-annealing non non through non-homologous end joining can lead to a process known as chromothripsis, which is complex rearrangements involving a single chromosome or a chromosome arm. 
However, one of the biology, one of the fascinating aspects of the biology of these micronuclei is that they tend to rupture. The micronuclear envelope ruptures during interface. Uh, and that led us to wonder whether the rupture and exposure of the chromosome inside this micronucleus could be driving this inflammatory response in the chromosomally unstable cells. So we first wanted to see if there is a correlation between chromosomal instability and the frequency of micronuclei, and indeed that was the case. Uh, in every system we looked at, metastases had more micronuclei uh, compared to primary tumors as well. That was nice to see and, uh, and validate. So I then wanted to basically ask the question whether the frequency of micronuclei and the, you know, the, the extent of chromosomal instability correlated with cytosolic DNA. And to do this, um, I performed selective plasma membrane permeabilization, so the nucleus is still intact, and used an antibody that recognizes the double helix, and that's as simple as that. What you could see was quite striking, is the low instability cells had very little cytosolic DNA staining, medium instability, and this is the highest instability. Virtually every cell had significant amount of cytosolic DNA. When I saw this, I didn't really believe it at first. We used another antibody from another vendor, got the same result, then used single-stranded nuclease after selective plasma membrane permeabilization. The double-stranded DNA signaling signal persisted, and only when we used the double-stranded nuclease, specific nuclease, did that signal significantly decrease, suggesting that it's truly uh, double-stranded DNA that we're observing. Again, this is not mycoplasma. We've tested for mycoplasma. There's no infection here. Uh, but this is also not mitochondrial DNA. It doesn't co-localize with COX-4, uh, and, and this is an example here. And to me, um, one of the biggest surprises is when we took a plate of, of MDMB231 cells, did subcellular fractionation, and uh, performed 30x whole genome sequencing on the nuclear fraction and the cytosolic fraction, we were able to recover the entire human genome from the cytoplasm of cancer cells, and that was, to me, very surprising. Uh, on the surface, that looks very much like the, the copy number correlates with the nuclear fraction on average. Again, this is an amalgamation of you know, millions of cells in one reaction. But when you actually look deeper, there is some structural alteration in the cytoplasmic fraction that don't exist in the nuclear fraction. So that's really interesting, and it's something we want to pursue uh, further to see how these two species of DNA differ from one another. So, um, you know, as a cell biologist, I think seeing is believing, and I think there's a lot, you know, a lot of the data I showed you so far is correlative, and we wanted to use a system to really ask the question, can chromosome missegregation introduce genomic DNA directly into the cytoplasm? And to do this, we used a really nice system developed by uh, Don Cleveland in San Diego, and it's from DLD1 cell lines. These are colorectal cancer cell lines that have microsatellite instability but are otherwise chromosomally stable. They're diploid. They are from a male patient, therefore they have a Y chromosome, and that was actually really helpful because um, the Y chromosome has non-redundant mechanisms to build, uh, to build a centromere and actually enable the canary core to assemble, leading to microtubule attachments. And so that system basically uses the fact that all autosomes and the X chromosome have SEMP-A, SEMP-C, SEMP-B, and SEMP-C as redundant pathways. So it used an auxin-inducible degron to degrade SEMP-A and reintroduced a, another SEMP-A mutant that cannot attach to or that cannot recruit SEMP-C, and therefore all chromosomes are fine because they can rely on SEMP-B attaching to SEMP-C to the microtubules, whereas the Y chromosome now suddenly has no mechanism to form attachments to the spindle microtubules. 
So uh, what the, the nice thing about this is that it's an inducible system, and it's selective to induce Y chromosome missegregation while all other chromosomes are in the, in the nucleus just happily there. So this is on day zero. You see one copy of the Y chromosome. This is chromosome-specific fish probes, and two copies of chromosome 15. Then you induce missegregation, and the day after you see, or two days later, you see Y chromosomes primarily in the micronuclei, whereas chromosome 15 is, you know, two copies still in the primary nucleus. And now the nice result is three days later, Y chromosome fragments are just splattered all over the cytoplasm and nucleus, basically fragmented everywhere. So what this really shows to us is the chromosome that undergoes high levels of missegregation is the chromosome that actually is more likely to end up as fragments in the cytoplasm. This might be the only time where Y chromosome has proven to be helpful for anything, but at least experimentally. So, so now we have cytosolic DNA of genomic origin. What are the consequences of this cytosolic DNA? So in 2013, uh, James Chen at UT Southwestern discovered uh, the function of C-gas, which is an enzyme that senses double-stranded DNA, the double helix. It resides in the cytoplasm, so it's a cytoplasmic DNA sensor. And it catalyzes the formation of a dinucleotide from ATP and GTP into CGAMP, which is cyclic GMP, AMP. Uh, and that dinucleotide diffuses, stabilizes the sting protein on the ER membrane, and that leads to the recruitment of transcription factor, specifically interferon regulatory factor and NF-kappa-B, upregulating a whole host of pathways. So we wanted to see in these cells, do we get that pathway activated? And what we, we stained for C-gas, which is the sensor, and what we found is striking localization of C-gas to these micronuclei. And it was only half of the micronuclei, uh, and likely these are the half that ruptured. So in order to test this, we overexpressed lamin B2, which is known to stabilize, by work done by Martin Hetzer, stabilize the micronuclear envelope, reducing the frequency of rupture. And indeed, we found a decrease in the frequency of micronuclei that were C-gas positive, suggesting that indeed it is a rupture. We also found post-transcriptional stabilization of the sting protein, which is downstream of C-GAMP. You can see here, and it, it's the, the hallmark of sting activation is paranuclear puncta. And on, on Western blots, you see increased level of sting protein, but you don't see that on the mRNA level, suggesting that it's indeed the, the pathway being activated. And immediately when I saw this finding, I ran, bought antibodies for IR3 and P65 and started looking at the pathway, and these cells completely shut down any evidence of interferon production. There was no uh, evidence for activating IR3 or P65 at the signaling level. You, can't, you do not see nuclear translocation. There was no increased interferon beta uh, in the condition media, and there was no increase uh, or induction of interferon-stimulated genes. So that was actually quite surprising. <laughs> However, what we did find is that there was evidence for chronic activation of the non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway. There was a paper by Glenn Barber's group showing that uh, cytosolic DNA can activate C-gas and activate uh, sting, and that can actually lead to non-canonical act activation of the non-canonical pathway in a TBK1-independent manner. TBK1 is this uh, downstream... Um, um, protein here downstream of sting. The mechanism of non-canonical activation is not entirely understood, but um, it, it's been shown to happen. So what we looked at is looked at low instability cells, high instability cells, and we looked at RELB, which is one of the two non-canonical NF-kappa-B factors, and indeed we see that in the low instability uh, cells, RELB exists primarily outside of the nucleus, 
in the high instability cells, it exists in the cytoplasm as well as the nucleus, suggestive of chronic activation of this pathway. When we add CGAMP, which is cyclic dinucleotide produced by CGAS, uh, on top of the low instability cells, we actually see increase in the nuclear uh, staining of RELB, suggesting that this pathway is CGAMP responsive. And this is just the quantification. What was also interesting is RELB nuclear localization was dependent on sting, which uh, when we deplete sting, the RELB, the frequency of the fraction of cells that have RELB, nuclear RELB went down. As a way to just validate this finding in a kind of an unbiased manner, uh, we looked at the TCGA breast cancer uh, data sets and found that um, patients that had high levels of chromosomal instability signature also had high levels of the non-canonical NF-kappa-B target genes. So that was nice to see uh, a validation in an independent data set. We then asked whether the chronic activation of DNA sensing in these cells mediated some of the metastatic properties. So in order to test this, we depleted sting using uh, shRNA, and we were able to significantly suppress metastasis in these chromosomally unstable cells. We also were able to suppress metastasis by depleting the downstream um, target, which is non-canonical NF-kappa-B transcription factor, RELB or NFKB2. This also significantly suppressed metastasis, reduced invasion in vitro as well, and extend uh, the lifespan of these mice. Uh, what was really surprising and potentially concerning is the fact that when we added CGAMP to the low instability of cell lines, we were actually able to significantly increase our migration if you compare these two bars here. This is in vitro. And the reason I say it's concerning is because sting agonists, so analogous to CGAMP, are being used in clinical trials through intratumoral injections to promote immune infiltration and clearance of, uh, you know, activate anti-tumor immune activity. And I would, you know, suppose that chronic sting activation inside cancer cells could actually have the opposite of, you know, not desired effect of promoting their motility and potentially um, uh, escape from the primary tumor. So it's something to be cautious about, and I think something that needs to be looked into uh, a lot more uh, carefully. So uh, as Bassa mentioned, uh, this work has just been recently accepted for publication, and I want to kind of summarize what uh, I've just mentioned to you today. So. Uh, you know, I've presented you data showing that chromosomal instability promotes the formation of these micronuclei that then rupture, spilling their content, genomic DNA content into the cytoplasm, leading to the activation of CGAS, which is a cytosolic DNA sensor that catalyzes the formation of CGAMP, cyclic dinucleotide, that then activates sting. And instead of the canonical response to cytosolic DNA, which entails you know, canonical NF-kappa-B and IRF3, these cells activate the non-canonical response to mediate metastasis uh, and invasion. Um, for a long time, I was wondering why these cells have that kind of, you know, shut down the canonical response, activate the non-canonical response. And after a little bit of, like, searching, I found that in, in normal physiology, um, myeloid-derived cells, actually, which are known to be activated by cytosolic DNA, uh, use RELB, which is one of the two non-canonical NF-kappa-B transcription factors, to migrate either to sites of inflammation or, in the case of dendritic cells, from the tumor, for instance, to the lymph node for cross-presentation. And so that raises up this really interesting possibility that cancer cells are switching the lethal epithelial response to what looks like a viral infection to a more myeloid-like response that is characterized by increased migration and activation of the cells. So that type of immune mimicry is a really interesting concept that uh, potentially, you know, chromosomal stability is lethal early on in tumor evolution, and then later some of these cells were able to switch and cope 
with the constant existence of cytosolic DNA are the ones that make it and are able to metastasize. So, um, you know, briefly, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit, very briefly, about my future directions. But basically, I, you know, I haven't talked to you about, you know, all of the past work, but we've used uh, computational modeling, cell biology, which forms the core of, of the work that I'm doing, single cell sequencing, tumor models, and, you know, patient samples to answer kind of fundamental questions about how chromosomal instability influences uh, therapeutic response, resistance, metastasis, and immune infiltration. Um, and I would, you know, what I haven't told you for, for all this talk is kind of the elephant in the room, is we're activating antiviral pathways. Uh, and what is the consequence of these activating of these antiviral pathways on the immune microenvironment? So CGAMP, while it has some function uh, in the tumor cell itself, it also could leak out of the tumor cells through yet not fully understood mechanisms, but gap junctions, exosomes, and potentially direct <coughs> export. Uh, potentially activating, and it's known to be a potent activator of antigen-presenting cells. So to test this, to test the effect of altering chromosomal instability on the immune microenvironment, we've done this in three different models, two immune-competent, one immune-compromised, but at least we were able to look at NK cells. This is the immune-compromised data, but it's been replicated. And what I'm showing you here is two, basically, MDA and B231 cell lines, because that's what I've been working with, so I'm showing you the same data for consistency. But we were able to inject the same tumor in the fat pad, low instability and high instability. So, and, and the difference between induction of instability is only a couple of weeks. But what we would see here is the striking phenotype, where the low instability uh, tumor has you know, barely any immune cells infiltrated in it, whereas the high instability tumor is replete of, in that case, NK cells. So that was really striking to see that phenotype. And it led to the question whether chromosomal instability is an intrinsic property of cancer that promotes what we call clinically the hot tumor phenotype. So there is the cold tumor, the hot tumor. Hot tumor doesn't necessarily mean that the immune system is attacking the tumor cells and eliminating them. In fact, the, the tumors on the right are the ones that are more aggressive. They grow, they metastasize, they, you know, uh, et cetera. So that also leads to the interesting hypothesis uh, so in the field. So basically, tumor cells have C-gasting pathway, or most tumor cells, some don't, but most tumor cells have C-gasting pathway uh, potentially that could be activated. The host also has the ability to send cytosolic DNA. So the question is, how does that um, immune infiltrate get recruited to the tumor microenvironment? And I think the hypothesis that we're pursuing right now, and it could be supported or refuted, is that it's actually CGAMP transfer from chromosomally unstable tumors to the host cells through a sting-dependent manner are the ones that induce or promote the immune infiltration. And it's probably type 1 interferon-mediated. And then, so the nice thing about this model is that it's testable. We could increase or decrease chromosomal instability. We could deplete C gas selectively in the tumor or in the host, sting in the tumor, sting in the host, et cetera, to test this relationship. There is also the question of how is CGAM transfer from the tumor cells to the host. And I think, to me, the most interesting question uh, is, as, especially as a radiation oncologist, actually, is how these cells are able to evade immune infiltration 
and, and actually if it, um, um, you know, being cleared out by the immune system. The reason being is we know radiation is a potent inducer of chromosomal instability, and specifically it's an agent that really potently increases the frequency of micronuclei. And in some cases, we know that radiation can induce systemic anti-tumor immunity, known otherwise as the abscopal effect. If you irradiate a lesion, you know, somewhere that's further away from another lesion, the other lesion sometimes responds. The abscopal effect is very rare. Uh, so I think there is a lot of interest in trying to see why or what is the mechanism of this abscopal effect, and if we can augment it, that would be kind of, obviously, uh, that would be interesting because we can use radiation as a way to augment systemic anti-tumor immunity. Um, and so to just kind of test a simple hypothesis whether it's CGAM transfer is something that underlies um, um, this immune infiltrate, we uh, depleted uh, multiple components of the cytosolic DNA sensing or the non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway and sting and CGAS, and only CGAS-depleted tumors were the ones that uh, grew more rapidly, and that was immune-mediated. Sting-depleted tumors grew at the same rate, and so what that tells us is sting depletion and C-gas depletion are not synonymous. Um, I've never thought that an athymic model, again, we're repeating, everything is being repeated in two immune-competent models, but one of the benefits of an athymic model is it can, you, you can run a cytokine array for humans and a cytokine array for mice and quickly be able to tell whether a cytokine is produced by the tumor or the host, and then kind of validate these predictions in an immune-competent model. So we're doing this right now, and what, one of the things that are really interesting is we're not seeing interferon production by the tumor cells, but we're seeing interferon production by the host in a tumor CGAS-dependent manner, really kind of starting to support this hypothesis of CGAM transfer into the host that really leads to upregulation of type 1 interferon uh, production. So right now, the, the pipeline for this aim, at least, uh, we're taking, um, or I'm taking a hypothesis-driven approach in four different leads, but also kind of a discovery approach. So uh, I have so far done single-cell uh, RNA-seq on 50 uh, tumors from different models and different depletions of different, you know, sensing pathways, so where we can actually, in one go, look at the distribution of tumor cells as well as all the subcomponents of the immune cells uh, in one single sequencing reaction, which has been really interesting. Um, and this is an example of a couple of samples from the single-cell RNA-seq that we're still in the process of analyzing, so that will take us a little bit of time. But you can see here, uh, you, can, you can easily uh, or very clearly, you know, subdivide the different uh, immune subtypes, and we're seeing some really interesting shifts as we deplete C-gas as we increase and decrease in stability, but this is something we still need to look into further. And that was done in collaboration with uh, Dana Payer, who's the Chair of Computational Biology at Sloan Kettering. So I would like to end um, on a kind of a very general hypothesis or model that, you know, kind of guides how I think about this problem and, you know, how it could be explored in the future. So in normal cells, activation of, uh, you know, antiviral responses is likely to be lethal on many levels. So in a cell autonomous manner, either through the activation of interferon pathway or recently there was a nature communication paper from Germany showing that very high sting act level and activation can lead to BH3-only domain apoptotic protein induction, and that leads to apoptosis. That doesn't also, uh, that could also include senescence of these cells. So activation of sting in normal cells or chromosomally stable, maybe early tumors, is potentially a lethal event. Uh, and even if the cell doesn't die in a cell autonomous manner, CGAM transfer from the tumor cells in response to chromosome segregation 
and cytosolic DNA can actually lead to type 1 interferon signaling and immune activation and T-cell-mediated clearance. However, it seems that chromosomally unstable tumors have gone through, I mean, that's a model, that have gone through multiple bottlenecks to overcome these hurdles and maintain chromosomal instability and coexist with cytosolic DNA. So on a cell autonomous manner, we found that the non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway is one example, how they shut down the canonical interferon-mediated signaling and upregulate the non-canonical NF-kappa-B pathway. In a non-cell autonomous manner, maybe there is cytokine production, there is increased, and I understand the word M2 is, is toxic, but, uh, you know, more polarized pro-tumorogenic macrophages um, that we see on the single cell level and actually a depletion of, of lymphocytes from the immune microenvironment. So understanding how these cells are able to coexist with the immune microenvironment is kind of an interesting way. If we can restore normal responses to inflammation from a cell intrinsic and a cell extrinsic manner, we can potentially use this as a therapeutic strategy specifically for chromosomally unstable cells because they're full of cytosolic DNA, which is just ready. It's almost like playing with fire, so to speak. And so with that, I would like to thank many, many people who have contributed to this work. Uh, obviously, Luke Cantley for his uh, tremendous support, Brian, a talented graduate student, Julie, uh, Mercedes, and Charlie for their help, Ashley, uh, who is at Sloan Kettering, uh, who helped, uh, who's also my wife, uh, was a Thayer grad and uh, helped me with the uh, early uh, work with single cell sequencing that I've shown you earlier in the talk. Dana Pear, Simon Powell, the chair of radiation oncology for his support. Um, and then Charlie at the Crick, Peter Lyon, Don Cleveland at UCSD, and Jan Lammerding and Ithaca and the funding sources. Thank you, and I'll take questions. Yeah, so that's a very good question. We haven't ex we haven't yet explored that. In part, I didn't want to do it partly because it was an immune compromised model, but we want to look at that in an immune competent model. So that's something we're definitely looking at. I can tell you that these cells have increased PDL1. That's one thing we've noticed. Um, so that was also interesting. There. Are there is now a paper that was recently published linking DNA damage response genes through IRF1 inducing PDL1 um, expression. So I, that's still unclear, but we saw that as an observation. It's a good question. Yes? Do you think, and it's hard for me to ask that question, but do you think radiation by inducing increased CIN and <coughs> can promote metastasis? Good question. So. Typically, when we treat you know, tumors with radiation, we go for definitive treatment. Uh, but I think the concept of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is something that's becoming more and more accept, you know, thought of. And actually, there was a recent paper in Science Translational Medicine showing that I believe it was cisplatin or taxol treatment when it's not definitive, when cells don't die, there is a residual tumor. These residual cells tend to actually switch to an EMT migratory phenotype. Um, the problem when we give non-definitive radiation is usually in metastatic patients who we can't really test that hypothesis in because their prognosis is very, you know, grim. But it definitely is a warning shot against non-definitive treatments for primary disease or sub-therapeutic dosing. So, underdosing, yeah. But I don't think it's specific to radiation. I think any 
TNA-damaging alkylating agents that are known to also cause chromosomal instability are they? And the other question is, I mean, when you look at relapse tumors, many times they have very abnormal karyotypes. They tend to be very unstable. So I think that's a testament to potentially could that be treatment effect. I mean, that's, it, it suggests that. I mean, it, it doesn't definitively prove that, but it's, it's a suggestive thing. Yeah? Are is <coughs> cytosolic DNA the precursor to cell-free DNA? <laughs> Good question. Um, I think the answer is unclear. So David Leiden is one floor below us, and I immediately, as soon as I saw cytosolic DNA, I'm like, exosomal DNA, this is passive diffusion. What we actually found is the opposite. Cells with high levels of cytosolic DNA had low levels of exosomal DNA. And cells with low levels of exosomal DNA had high levels of, sorry, low cytosolic DNA had high levels of exosomal DNA. So it's the opposite of what we expected. What that suggests is exosomal DNA is not simply passive. I mean, assuming it's of cytosolic origin, it might not be passive diffusion. It might be something that's specifically, you know, packaging, et cetera. There, we're, we're started to work on DNAs too because it's known to actually um, package DNA into uh, potentially multivesicular bodies that are precursors to exosomes. And when we overexpress DNAs too in high instability cell lines, <clears throat> we saw some really interesting phenotype. Initially, exosomal DNA shot up very fat, you know, very highly, and then it got depleted completely. And I think what happens is. Maybe the exosomal DNA is to actually, you know, degraded the cytosolic DNA, enabled its packaging, and then after a while, too much DNA is to basically depleted all of the cytosolic DNA. But that's that, that's very much like hand waving. So I'm not really looking into exosomes myself, but when I saw this, I was interested in talking to David Leiden about it. And since we had the opposite results, we haven't had a chance yet to really delve deeper into this. But it's a good question. I mean, where is cell-free DNA coming from? Is is an important question. To finally answer your question as well, um, I did travel to the UK for a week and I scored missegregation rates in all 100 non-small cell lung cancer uh, tracer X samples from Charlie Swanton's study in the, in, in the UK. And what we, he does have cell-free DNA in the, in the paper that was recently published in Nature, and that wasn't published part of the paper, but we did see a correlation, very strong correlation between chromosome missegregation and cell-free DNA status of these cells. So, yeah, I think that might be related. <clears throat> sure. No, no, the size uh, would not be suggestive of that. I think exosomal DNA we tend to be in. I mean, obviously it's a distribution, but the, it's about three kb, uh, and the micronuclei could be entire like chromosomes. Yeah, uh, we do see micronuclear rupturing. There's some thought about micronuclear extrusion, but I've never actually seen that myself. Yeah. Um, I don't know very much about this pathway, but in your model, when you're shutting off the canonical sting pathway, is yeah. there some sort of feedback that you think is going on to do that, or what do you think is... Yeah, that's a very good question. So one of the first mechanisms I decided to look at to see how these cells are surviving uh, with the coexisting, basically, with cytosolic DNA is to see if they upregulate normal negative feedback loops that prevent excessive inflammation after viral infection. And indeed, we're finding su suggestive evidence that that might be the case. So there was a cell paper showing that cholesterol synthesis and cholesterol flux actually downregulate interferon signaling downstream of sting. These cells have that. 
there is also evidence suggesting that MST1 uh, can phosphorylate IRF3, which is interferon regulatory factors in 2-threonine residues, preventing, preventing their dimerization and translocation into the nucleus. So at the signaling level, that could also be happening. Um, you know, could be also epigenetic level. I mean, so it's a very good question. I mean, that's one of my aims is to understand how these cells are able to shut down interferon, and if we can understand that, can we reverse that for a therapeutic benefit? Yeah. David? You said you looked at exosomal DNA. You also just looked at DNA not membrane-bound outside the media, maybe in your in vitro model. That's very good. We haven't, and I, in part because the person I collaborated with in the Leiden lab was really scared of apoptotic cells basically kind of contributing DNA as well because you can't, once they apoptose and they open, you know, it's hard to tell what what comes from the cytoplasm pool, but it's a, it's a good point. I mean, I haven't really paid much attention into extracellular DNA, uh, to be honest. I mean, that was just a very curious experiment that gave us confusing results. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much.